This is Jenny Allen, and you are listening to the Made For This podcast. So as we dreamed about wrapping up this series, we really thought about who should come on and close it. And I'll tell you who I picked because my daughter is someone who follows Jesus. A lot of you have heard from her, Kate, on the podcast. And she gets up in the morning and regularly picks up this man's devotional. And the name of the devotional is New Morning Mercies, and it's by Dr. Paul Tripp. It has given her such focus in her day, and she talks about how when she meets with God in the morning and how she reads this devotional, there is a peace that comes over her before she heads into public school and all that her day entails. And watching my daughter grow from someone has been so rewarding to me. And so I wanted to invite Dr. Tripp on, and I'm so honored you're here with me today. Thank you so much, Dr. Tripp, for being here. Oh, I'm so glad we can do this. So let's start with that devotional. Let, let's start with New Morning Mercies. Really, the, the focus of that devotional is that the gospel can enter our everyday lives. It has been transformative in my own life. And talk about where that journey began for you. So there's really two things that uh, ignited my desire to write an everyday devotional. The first is just the recognition that as human beings, we don't live life based on the facts of our experience, but based on our interpretation of the facts. Mm. Uh, we've been wired by God to be meaning makers. So every day, everybody all the time is making sense out of our lives. And that's a profoundly important thing. It's deeply spiritual. Uh, and the way you make sense out of your life will not only impact what you do, but will impact your emotions, your sense of well-being, your sense of identity, of meaning and purpose. And the, the thing about that is that for most of us, we don't think about that. We're not, we're not self-conscious that we're always interpreting and that what we then do and how we then feel is really based not just on the facts of what's going on around us, but our interpretation of those facts. That's the first thing. The second thing is I recognized something in myself that I became convinced was also in others that I can be what I would call a gospel amnesiac. Many people have a good understanding of salvation past, the forgiveness they've received in Jesus, and salvation future, the guarantee of this awesome eternity with the Lord. But they're not really aware of the present benefits, what I call the nowism of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And when you get the gospel right here, right now, it just changes the way that you live. And so for me, the, the gospel is not just, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. But it's a lens that I use to look at everything in life. I just finished my 24th book, and I jokingly say that I've, I've only written one book. I just retitle it every year. <laughs> what I mean by that is it's always just turning and looking at something else with those gospel glasses on yes. and asking the question, how would this look different if I looked at it through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and who I am and what I've been given 
as his child. Yes. Oh my gosh, I'm going to interrupt you there because I think you just changed my life. I'm going to say that about what I do because I feel that way that I literally could never run out of books to write. People are asking me all the time, how are you writing so many books? And I'm like, because until I've covered every way that Jesus changes something, I don't know that I'll get to the <laughs> the end. And I love that. I love what you're saying because I, I don't think I've thought of those words about it, but that's what we all need. We have to know. It's not just to know the gospel. It's to know how the gospel changes the way I parent, the way I think in this case. Sure. There's a, there's a real interesting uh, passage in Second Peter chapter 1 where Peter proposes that there are people who really do know the Lord, but who are ineffective and unproductive in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very interesting diagnosis. And when you, when you dig into that passage, he says they're ineffective and unproductive because they've forgotten that they've been cleansed from their past sins. What he's saying is mm. they don't know who they are and they don't know what they've been given. Yes, they're going to go to heaven someday, but right here, right now, their lives are not fruitful because they're amnesiacs. Okay, I'm going to ask you a really big question theologically there. Are those people saved? Yeah, I see, I think... I think it's it's possible to be rescued yeah. by the gospel and not be living in light of all I've been given in the gospel. Let me give you an example. Let's just say I have a rich uncle and I happen to be his final living relative. He's just passed on. And I get a call from the bank that I have in my a trust now, $50 million dollars. And so the first day I'm, I'm excited, I go down and, and my life is completely changed by the gift of this man. I draw out uh, $10,000 and take my wife out to eat, Paris. And we have this glorious weekend. And several months later, Luella, my wife, says to me, Paul, I don't understand. You, you say we're rich, rich, but we're still living like we're poor. I don't understand. And I say, well, yeah, we are, but it's so hard to go down that bank and they treat me like a criminal and they have to fingerprint me and I have to wait in one of those Disney World lines. And what would she be saying to me? You're <laughs> Get rich. down there. <laughs> why, why are you not experiencing all that those riches would afford for you? I think that's the life of many believers. Mm. They are rich in grace. But they're not living out those riches. They're living as if they're poor. That never leads to peace of heart. It never leads to healthy relationships. It never leads to hope and courage. Right. It just doesn't. And so let's go back to the devotional because you knew something was missing in our everyday lives. That, that if we could realize that and gain that courage and that perspective in a more regular way, that that would what? What would happen? Well, see, I, I knew that I needed it. I said this many times as people talk, have talked to me about the bullshit. I wrote it for me and then I gave it away mm. because I knew I needed to start every day remembering who I am and what I've been given. Here's the impact, for example, on my marriage. If you don't understand that you really do have everything you need in Christ, you begin to ask the people around you to be your own personal Messiah, mm. to hold your identity, to hold your hope, to be what they could never be. I'm married to a wonderful lady, 
but she's not the Messiah. If you forget what you've been given, then you try to control things that you cannot control. And so it has immediate impact on your relationships and on the way that you approach every day. It's wonderful for me to remember that the one who is my savior is also sovereign. The Bible says, this, is, this blows my mind. He rules over everything for the sake of his people. Mm. That's amazing to me. So I never enter a situation that somehow, some way isn't under the rulership of my Savior. Oh, that's so comforting. It's just, it's mind boggling to me. I, I love when Jesus sends out the disciples these guys are scared to death. They're going to carry this, this message of this Messiah. And he says two things. Oh, by the way, boys, all authority is given to me on heaven and earth. I rule. And then he says, oh, and also, lo, I am with you always. I will go with you wherever you go. I would never send you someplace mm. without going with you. L- let me give you a, a concept, if I can, here, that... that came to me as writing this de- devotional. The reliability of God's promises to me, the reliability is completely dependent on the scope of his sovereignty because you can only guarantee you will deliver a promise in situations over which you have control. That's, that's the way it is. Mm. And so the reason God can guarantee that his promises will be for me when I need them because he controls the situations in which those promises need to be delivered. I can guarantee promises in my house, but I can't in the house next door because I have no control there. And so those things bring peace to my heart. They bring courage. They bring hope. They allow me not to try to be what I cannot be and do what I cannot do. And all of that has just a a harvest, a white harvest of benefits in my life. So let's talk about this idea of our thought lives because we're bumping up against it as we're talking, but I want to talk about really practically how do we fix our minds on God and what is it exactly that you're thinking about when you choose to do that? I think of a place in the Psalms where, where David's facing horrific things and he says, one thing I want to do is I want to run to the temple and behold the beauty of the Lord. What is he saying? I must recalibrate my thinking or I'm in trouble. And the way I do that is I remember the beauty of the the Lord, who he is, and what I am as his child. I counsel people all the time to wake up every morning and spend just a few minutes gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. You say, I don't know how, how I do that. Well, Isaiah 40 this is an amazing rift on God's glory. The last few chapters of, of Job, amazing rift on God's glory. And, and so I, I want to I remember that. And then I want to remind myself that, that what I've just considered forms my identity because that beauty has been poured down on me by grace. Now I've at least recalibrated the way I think. You know, you wake up in the morning and you get flooded with all the responsibilities of the day, all the problems that are around you, all the, the necessary tasks that you have to, have to do. And it's a way of starting your day by just focusing your mind on this is who God is. This is who I am as his child. 
And so what role does the Holy Spirit play in this? Let's talk about the power and comfort that God has given us through him, because I think sometimes we don't know where to put him. You know, like, it's okay. Okay, we're going to focus on the cross. We're going to focus on Father God. But what is the Holy Spirit? What is his role in all this? God knew that my need was so great that it was not enough just to forgive me. Praise God for that. He literally unzipped me and got inside of me by his spirit. Because between the already of my conversion and the not yet of my home going, I'm a still being matured person living in a dramatically broken world that does not function the way God attended. I cannot be what I'm supposed to be, do what I'm supposed to do, think as I'm supposed to think, speak as I'm supposed to think on my own. I need help. Mm. And so God sent a helper and I don't have to get an appointment because he actually lives within me. Mm. I mean, th- these are things so awesome for me. It's hard for me to wrap words around and so I the, think, the glory of this. Yeah, I think sometimes because it is so awesome, we don't know how to get our heads around it. And so we don't. We miss this truth that's supposed to change absolutely everything. I understand as I face my day that there is awesome, incalculable, divine power living inside of me. God's made me the temple where he lives. And so I'm, I'm never out there by myself. I have resources greater than I would ever have on my own. That's what Jesus is saying, lo, I am with you always. Now think about this. Where is that promise immediately uh, fulfilled? It's in the beginning of Acts, where the Spirit of God falls on his followers so that they would have the wherewithal to do what he called for them to do. Mm. That's who I am. I'm not just Paul trying to bump his way through life, hoping that somehow I'll get it right, because God knew that would never work. That's why his greatest gift to me is himself. It's him that I have. And that is so ridiculously counterintuitive. It's so dramatically different from the way I normally think about myself. I've got to remind myself of that every day. And what do you think keeps us from doing that? What what keeps people from sitting in that? If it's that good, what keeps us from meeting every morning and from remembering every day what we have? I, I think a, a couple things. One thing, the cultural thing is, it's nowhere uh, enforced around us. Mm. You know, uh, what is the icon of Western culture? The icon of Western culture is a self-made person. That's right. And this is a cliche, but I'm going to say it. The Bible would teach us that the self-made person is always poorly made <laughs> because it takes divine intervention, divine recreation, rebuilding. But that's the icon. So I'm not going to get this enforced at my workplace, maybe by my extended family, in my neighborhood, in education, in politics, cultural entertainment. I'm not. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I still have the artifacts of sin within me. What is the the DNA of sin? It's self-reliance. Yeah. What was the hook in the garden? It wasn't fruit. It was independence from God. And so I still have in me a bit of that inertia towards self-reliance. I want to independently be able to do this. And so it's very easy 
to name yourself as okay and to name yourself as capable when, when you're not. Mm. Not just easy, encouraged, right? I mean, that's what I found. Yeah. Oh, 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 absolutely. When I, absolutely. When I did all the research on the brain and you know, I looked at it first through scripture and taught through scripture on it, but then I went to neuroscience and I saw all of the self-help and it was all about the hope was in us. And I thought, oh my gosh, like even if I didn't believe in God, I, I would think that that would fall short. <laughs> like I just, I fall short. I feel that. That's not something somebody has to tell me. I know that's true. It happens almost moment by moment. What? Yeah. Why is that such an effective lie? Because it feels broken on so many levels to me besides just what I know about God. Well, uh, two responses. One, it's it's been reported, and I don't, I don't know the reliability about this, but it does make sense to me that one of the highest buying audiences of self-help books on Amazon or Barnes and Noble are Christians. Now, I get that because a Christian would tend to be more serious about life, more serious about the consequences of their behavior, and would want help. If you, if you just think of the Bible as an entrance and an exit, and not as a living reality, then you're going to go elsewhere for help. So that's that's the first thing. And that's reinforced all around the around culture. Wait, help I want you to your... say that again. If you just think about I want you to say that line again. If you just if you if just think about the Bible as give me an entrance door and an exit door, and not about life here, now, right now, mm. you're gonna go somewhere else for help. Mm. And I think that's what many, many believers do. Here's the second thing. I think this is more fundamental. The way the gospel of Jesus Christ works is you have to accept the bad news before the good news means anything to you. And the bad news is that the biggest problems in my life are inside of me, not outside of me. The thing that I most need to be rescued from is myself. My problem is my own mind, my own heart. And until you humbly accept that, I'm a person in need of help. You don't seek the wonderful help that's there in the Bible. I've been writing, I tweet the gospel every day, and, and I've been, all of my tweets this, this month have been about the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. And it just hit me again. That story is deeply humbling mm. because if God would go to such an effort to do this miraculous thing where the Son of God would actually become a baby and take on the human condition and live in this fallen world. I mean, it's just mind-boggling how desperately incapable of helping ourselves must we be mm -hmm. apart from that divine help. What we're saying is culturally and internally, that's not intuitive. I have to accept that reality that I need help. I believe this. If I would follow Jesus for a thousand years, the next day I would need his grace as much as I did the first day I believe. Does that ever discourage you? No, because his grace is a limitless font. It will never run out. It never grows tired. He never grows weary. I'm never disgusting to him. One of, the, one of the most comforting moments to me is that moment where Jesus is on the cross and he faces now the most horrible thing in that moment of suffering. It's not physical, it's relational. It's a moment where the father turns his back on the son 
And Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, here's what this means for me. Jesus took every shred of my rejection so that I would never, ever again see the back of God's head. God loves me on my worst, stupid, most self-oriented day because of what Jesus has done. And so I can go, having blown it terribly, having loved my rebellion for a while, having acted as a fool to God, and he will greet me with arms of mercy. And I will never outgrow my need for that. It would be nice to be able to say I've outgrown that, but I haven't. Mm. Every day I need that. I need that mercy. And it's mine. And it will never end. And God will never turn his back. That changes you when you get a hold of that. Mm. And it makes me sad. So many people are are, are looking for security someplace else or looking for right. identity someplace else in places it can't deliver. Right. It makes me want to weep. Yeah. When when this beautiful thing has been given, that's why I wrote the devotional. Yeah. I know it does. Even as we're talking, I just feel urgency of just wanting people to be free, wanting people to know God like this and realizing that so many days we miss what we could have. I mean, I love the bank account analogy. I feel like it's so accurate of what is ours and how crazy we are if we don't access it every chance we get. One of the things I've talked about in this book was the idea that beauty and worship and delight can crumble our walls that we erect in our hearts. And you mm. are a poet. You just you just wrote a new devotional and it involves poetry. So I've heard, I haven't gotten my hands on it yet. I can't wait to. But talk about this in your own life, how God has used worship to connect you with him and to change you. Well, see, I, I, I think that it, it begins with the creator world. I think that God has designed a world of glorious beauty so that that entire created world would be a finger pointing to the beauty that is him. I, I love what it says in Isaiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. There's a way in which you can't get up in the morning without bumping into God because he's everywhere visible in his creation. God did that so that we would be drawn to the one who is a source of all this glory, all this beauty. I'm a bit of a museum rat, and I stand in front of a big, glorious painting, and it always hits me if this glory could be produced by a frail human being, how glorious is the God who gave him those gifts? How can you look at a painting not, without worshiping? How can you eat warm mashed potatoes with butter melting over them without worshiping? Because all of those are, came out of the mind of God and are there because of the goodness of God, the way that God uses beauty to draw us toward him is a, is a very important thing. I, I want beauty in my life, not just because I like nice things, but because I want that beauty to help me to see beyond that be- beauty. Now, I want to give you another illustration. Here's though the sad thing I think happens. Let's say my kids are young and I say to them, we're going to go to Disney World. We're going to make all these sacrifices this year. But at the end of the year, we'll go to Disney World. I take them up on the the website and I show them the unbelievable, amazing glory of Disney World. And they're so excited. And we live with an anticipation of that. And now we're driving down to toward Disney World and we see that first sign that says 
Disney World, 120 miles. And I stop and say, kids, we're here. And we unpack the car. What would you think about me? You would think this man is crazy. You would say, your child would say, dad, the sign points to the thing, but it's not the thing. Mm. What we do is we celebrate the creation. We try to feed ourselves on the creation when the creation was designed to point us to the creator. Yes. Who alone can satisfy our hearts? We're like a bunch of people 120 miles from Disney World hoping that we can have a good time. Yes. And the sign will never give us that. The sign's important. It is a very important place. When Jesus fed the 5,000 and they wanted to make him king, he said, you you only want me to be king because you had your bellies filled. And, And essentially he says, you've tasted the miracle, but you haven't seen the sign. This was just meant to point you to the fact that I'm the bread that you need. Mm. That's everything in the created world. Why does God give me a relationship? That, so that relationship would remind me of my relationship to him. Everything in the created world is a big finger pointing to him. Mm. But you can't stop at the sign. You'll never be satisfied. You'll be a bit crazy because it can't deliver what it's pointing to. So for the person listening right now who feels completely stuck in negative thought patterns and they believe there's not a way out, what would you say to encourage them? I would say two things. God's Word is a wonderful resource. It's not a dark, dusty book. It lives with everyday life. The Psalms is a place to go that is honest about life but gloriously hopeful. But there's something else I want to say, and it's been, it's been important for me too. I understand my spiritual health is a community project. There are times I can't get out of my own head. And I'm thankful for people in my life who will speak grace mm. into my head. Yes. And get help. Reach out and find people who you know can help you to begin to establish some habits of control so that you begin to uh, live in some of the riches that you've been given. Hey, will you pray for people as we close? I will. Lord, it is amazing that you do rule over all things for the sake of your children. It is amazing that your mercies are new every morning, that you haven't left us alone, but you are with us. But I understand that there are many people who don't experience that, who live in discouragement and fear, burdened down with concern. And I pray that you would meet them by your grace, that they would experience mercies that are really renewed every day, that they would find help in their moment of need. I pray that you would help them to find help in the recesses of your word and the help of others that can lead them to understand what they've been given in you. And we pray as a result of even this broadcast that In weeks and months to come, we could look back and say, God was with us and he's done a really good thing. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We are so grateful for Pine Cove Summer Camps who have partnered with us this season. Pine Cove Camps is Christ-centered, 
others-focused, and seriously fun. You guys want to send your kids here. All the summer staff are college kids who are positive Christian role models and mentors, and they love Jesus. It's a safe place for your kids to go and grow in their faith. So if you use the code JENNY250, all one word, J-E-N-N-I-E 250, at pinecove.com slash youth camp, you can get $250 off a first-time overnight youth camp registration. So go have fun. Let us know if you sign your kid up.